Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. And if you haven't already, we appreciate feedback from our listeners. So whatever streaming service you listen to us through, please go ahead and rate our show if it allows you to do that. Um, And joining James and I today is our guest, Zach Hicks. Zach is here to discuss his book, Worship by Faith Alone, Thomas Cramner, the Book of Common Prayer, and the Reformation of the Liturgy. That's the full title, but uh, we, we will talk about all those things, <laughs> which are included in the title. Um, and it's a book that makes the case for the reformational principle or teaching of faith alone, or sola fide, was the driving force for Thomas Cramner in his liturgical revision uh, and composition of the Book of Common Prayer. Zach Hicks holds a Doctor of Ministry from Knox Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Denver Seminary. He's a pastor, songwriter, and music producer, and I recommend people go to his website, zachhicks.com, that's Z-A-C-H-I-C-K-S.com, to listen to some of his music, as well as uh, find down, downloadable resources for, for music worship leaders. Um, music worship seems to be his thing, and he wrote and he, that, that, that he, he kind of explores the intersection of that with theology and church history, so this will be a good, good show. Um, so Zach, thanks for coming on Doth Protest. Thank you so much, and thanks for the nice introduction too. Yeah, well, um, I just wanted to say it was a fascinating book. It is one I very much, as I read it, uh, I sensed, um, I sensed this was true along that all along. That's kind of the the, the mm. what kept going through my head. This was true all. You know, as someone who myself speaking for me, I, I, you know, I've as a Episcopal priest, I have celebrated and led. Anglican liturgy for a few years now and of course I've been a participant in Anglican liturgy long before that of course and as someone who finds the centrality of grace through faith um, you know that was at the heart of reformational Christianity as someone who really finds that to be just the key defining uh, essence of what Christianity is um I've had such a strong sense that the Cramnerian liturgy or Cramner's language of the book, the in the book of common prayer so strongly echoed uh, the grace centered themes that I so much find as a student of Luther, you know, in Martin Luther's thought, uh, because, you know, Cramner was influenced by Luther Melanchthon and what was going on in the Reformation in the continent. Um, and it was more than just uh, an element. And I think your book brings that out. Um, I mean, a lot of revisionistic history of Anglicanism has downplayed the fact, I think, that Cramner was engrossed in the same things, the same concerns, you know, that the continental reformers were. Um, mm-hmm. And so your book lays out in detail 
uh, gives kind of does like an analysis, of course, of the Cramnerian liturgies of like 1549 and 52 and so on. Um, so, you know, all I say is as I'm reading it, I'm just thinking in my head, yes, yes, OMG, I agree. And, you know, <laughs> I found it difficult on what not to underline or highlight mm. as I read it. Mm. So wanted to ask you a bit about your background though, because, because, you know, since we're, we're talk, we're all Anglicans here and, you know, I'm particularly your Anglican background is Anglican, something you have long been a part of what, what led you to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm not a native to the Anglican tradition and I'm currently uh, not in it. And in a sense, uh, operated within it for a period of time from the outside and so some people might automatically view my status as an ordained presbyterian minister ordained in a small presbyterian denomination called the evangelical presbyterian church some people might view that as an automatic uh disqualifier or i'm automatically sus when it comes to someone who would engage uh thomas cranmer but anybody who knows their Presbyterian history well knows that uh, we emerged out of uh, the Church of England. I wouldn't want to call it the Anglican tradition because that's that's a later later moniker given back in time. But uh, if you want to use that language, yeah, uh, in a sense, Presbyterians are ancestors of the Anglican tradition. And part of the fascination was recognizing that Cranmer was within my own lineage. Um, more practically, though, for the last five, the five of the last seven years, uh, up until the last two years, I had been serving at an Episcopal cathedral in downtown Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And um, that was my first time engaging in pastoral leadership in an Anglican context. I'd always been someone who had studied, appreciate, and utilized resources from the Anglican tradition from the outside, but never served in, in one of those contexts before. Uh, and I was called uh, to be canon for liturgy and worship for about five years there at Cathedral Church of the Advent. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a sense, what led me there was my Cranmer studies. Um, the, the clergy there had discerned that I had a kind of a unique constellation of um, skills, gifts, and calling, and a theological angle that was useful for the Advent at the time. And so I became um, the overseer of the worship services of the Advent and was trying to ask the question, how do we engage in, in the current liturgies of the Episcopal Church in ways that are um, as faithful as we can to the Reformation heritage that we have? Um, but really, my journey into the prayer books was much more um, was much more from the side. I began asking the question of what it looks like for worship services to be shaped around the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that very long journey and that that question that I kept asking oh, as someone whose job was to plan lead worship services eventually led me to Cranmer. And I discovered someone, oh, my gosh, who had uh, been asking and answer that answering that question with far better uh, skills, gifts, and training than I ever could. And so I said, rather than try to reinvent this wheel, I want to get to know this man, what made him mm -hmm. tick. The more I got into it, the more I started to see, not all Anglicans think about Cranmer the same way. Not all Anglicans think <laughs> about their tradition the same way. So that was a kind of surprise to me as someone who is uh, more uh, uh, just kind of more focused in a more focused way, interested in what Cranmer had to say about what I call, what we call gospel-centered worship now. But in my deep dive, I found that um, I was of use to a to a, a Anglican parish, an Episcopalian parish in downtown Birmingham for a while. And that was a big blessing to me. And now I carry Cranmer's insights with me back into the church that I planted here in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. um, and so funny enough, our, our church is very Cranmerian in the way that we engage uh, our liturgical structure and shape even as it's got some unique uh, modern twists and stuff like that. So Zach, one of the things that, uh, that, that I, I've read mm -hmm. in the book so far that I found interesting, and, and correct me if I'm phrasing this wrong, but I think in one of your footnotes, you said that Cranmer was perhaps a bit more Lutheran when it comes to justification by faith mm -hmm. um, than he would be classically reformed so I, I haven't seen how you parse that out uh, or if you parse that out but are you talking about predestination election or are you talking about like justification specifically yeah more Lutheran? Uh, i i think that yeah what i the one of the things i 
both discovered in reading his writings and discovered in some of the finer points of his own choices in liturgical revision was that soteriologically speaking, it, with the finer hairs that are to be split between the Reformed Reformation, Lutheran Reformation, Cranmer seemed to make decisions that looked more consonant uh, with uh, Lutheran ideas insofar as they are distinct. And right. particularly of interest to me was the way he discerned the distinction between law and gospel. And so a helpful framework that allowed me to see some of this stuff was given in a book edited by Jonathan Linebaugh called God's Two Words, where he, he is a, as a proper Episcopalian and Anglican in good Cranmer fashion, brought Lutherans and Reformed folks, theologians together to dialogue about their traditions insofar as it related to this question of the distinction between law and gospel to get past some of the caricatures and into maybe some of the the deep structure of the theology. Um, and in that book, it really does do a bit of work there. And even in his introduction, uh, Linebaugh tries to, and Linebaugh is one of my doctoral supervisors. He was the one that oversaw my dissertation that became this book. So he's kind of helped me see heavily uh, the finer points. And, and insofar as I see uh, the Lutherans talking about the distinction between law and gospel, I see Cranmer favoring that in some of the ways he makes decisions over and against some of the ways that the reform folks and it becomes crystallized in a moment like uh the way the reformation liturgies particularly use the decalogue mm -hmm. that was a particular point where i i noticed something and i hadn't really heard anyone else talk about it this way and i'm like this is really interesting when you compare some of the more reformed theologians of the reformation they would use the decalogue uh in this way they would um they would recite the first four commandments and then offer a confession of sin and absolution. And then the, the last six would be recited and confessed after that. And the theological implication was that now that I'm saved and redeemed, now that I'm uh, now that I am filled with the spirit by the absolving word of God, I am able through the spirit to keep the law and the law sounds differently <laughs> to me now. And so yeah. these laws that would have been uh, kind of crushing, condemning, commands are now uh, the joyful response of the new of the new believer and that's definitely if we're parsing some of the distinction between the long gospel distinction in the lutheran tradition or reformed tradition it's a very reformed move and interestingly enough cranmer had access to liturgies that did that but when he put the decalogue into the book of common prayer he put all 10 together with the repeated response that we all know well of uh, Lord have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law, all preceding any moment of confession or absolution. Yeah. Uh, so it's stuff like that that kind of betray that sort of thing. So that's what I mean. Yeah. It's a bit of a long-winded answer, but hopefully gave you a concrete instance where I see that stuff at play. Well, that's def that definitely is like the the contrast between the. I've always heard the contrast between Lutherans and the Reform when it comes to long gospels. That um, Lutherans, it's law than gospel reformed it's the was the law gospel sandwich is that i think james i think you heard you said that it's the <laughs> yeah, sometimes people the will say and it's a bit of a, the law. <laughs> that's yeah. right law gospel law uh it's a bit of a caricature and i know plenty sure. of reformed uh reformed theologians that uh would want that to be far more nuanced than that but sure, yeah sure, that's right. a it's not a bad way of describing it. it's certainly the way it functioned liturgically yeah, you know, in Val yeah. Valorant Poulain's liturgy is one of the liturgies that structures it that way. So yeah. it's it's stuff like that that made me go, huh, Cranmer had access to this liturgy and he didn't choose that. And that kind of made me ask why. It, well, yeah, it, go, go ahead, James. Okay. Well, I, I was going to say, so so I had the opportunity. Um, I, I uh, served a church that was founded in 1664. Um, wow. The building is uh, from 1757. Um, and so last Sunday we had our heritage Sunday and we did the 1662 prayer book service. So I got to celebrate the Eucharist according to 1662. Mm. And I know this is a hundred plus years after Cramer died, but it maintains a very similar structure to the 1559. Yes. And, yes. And, um, and what you're saying resonates so much because as I was going through the liturgy, I was just, I, I was so taken aback and, and, and in wonder of the fact that, so you go to the Decalogue. And then you have the confession and absolution. So you have law and gospel there. And then you have the yeah. implications 
and you have the comfortable mm-hmm. words mm-hmm. And gospel there mm-hmm. and it's always it always ends with gospel um because it it reminds you of the fact that like you have been saved by grace through faith alone yeah. grammar faith only and so um that that's that's the that's the the thrust um yeah and it it you see that cycle, what what some people call cycles of repentance or, you know, scholars like J.I. Packer call uh, sin, grace, faith, or however you describe it. You see these uh, patterns coming up again and again in very strongly stark ways. You see law sections and you see gospel sections over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as though Cranmer's trying to drive the shape of repentance into the into the hearts of people in the liturgy and it's precisely that that i find not being observed in subsequent revisions of the prayer book when they say hey we're trying to be faithful to cranmer that's one of the things that i don't see being uh um kind of faithful to or in a sense saying hey this is part of what really drove him and I guess I'm not asking for everybody to be Cranmerian. <laughs> I, I might be asking for people to be a little bit more honest about uh, the picture of what is and what what is not the will of the original architect yeah. of the the prayer book. Because I'm well, I'm under no illusion that uh, all Anglicans will buy this theological framework. It's just that uh, revisionist history has made it opaque whether indeed Cranmer was truly a Protestant or yeah. truly convicted by these uh, Reformation principles. Well, it sounds like you share my uh, frustration, James and I, our frustration, because, you know, James, uh, just to put him on the spot, he, well, not putting you on the spot, but putting you, uh, draw, bringing attention to you. James brought, wrote a blog for EFAC USA couple months ago where he where he argued that you know anglicanism as it was established um at least in the first uh, century of there being a church of england was um defined by the formularies um and <laughs> right. the f- formularies as they are often referred to as at least uh they express very straightforwardly a theology that's largely in tune with that of the continental reformers uh, you know it isn't exactly lutheran it isn't exactly calvinist or zwinglian but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyone who knows of course the historical backdrop of the formularies and the theological concerns uh of that backdrop know that these statements contained in these articles bear a strong resemblance and influence of the theological positions of Luther, Calvin, and at times Zwingli, um, yeah. you know we can try to we can try to deny it simply by relegating the thirty nine articles to you know just to be a good historical development at best, but not pertaining to our time anymore. And I think that's what has happened in a lot of modern modern Anglicanism. But mm-hmm. um, you know James and personally me myself too, I think they shouldn't be relegated to the dustbin of history. Um, Right. And so, yeah. Um, and how'd that article go for you, James? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard no feedback. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's unsurprising. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. It was rejected. I won't name, I won't name names, but it was rejected by uh, some other Anglican publications because uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, that's just, it shows how much this revisionistic history has really creeped in. I, mean, so, I, was, I was actually, I was actually charged with, revisionist history because the thrust of the Mm. article was that the way to maintain a solid anglican identity is by returning to the formularies Mm -hmm. and yeah well you just you just want to leave behind Mm. you know hundreds of years of anglican theological development yeah yeah Uh, it's a complicated question i mean i I i've heard my other doctoral supervisor ashley null kind of the world's one of the world's leading cranmer scholars talk about anglican identity before and it's tricky now because post Cranmer, we have we have to reckon uh, with for for Anglicans living in the twenty first century that uh, enough of think enough ideas and competing concepts besides what Cranmer was attempting to establish have come in to Anglicanism for a significant enough time that in a sense twenty first century Anglicanism just historically speaking can claim certain things outside of Cranmer's vision that are properly maybe just by fact a part of Anglican identity. Where the parsing you want to have happen is, uh, uh, let's just be clear about uh, the project being set out for in the 16th century when the Church of England was was first formed and founded. 
yeah. that's that's what's not maybe being said with clarity because everyone kind of wants to claim those origins and i i think that certain certain anglicans can and certain anglican is anglican anglicans can't um and that's just sort of that's just let's be historically honest even okay. as we might say is there is there a certain brand of anglicanism that has more of a claim to 21st century anglicanism than another I leave that to the Anglicans to decide. No, <laughs> but we, like you're, you are an interested third party, and therefore you <laughs> for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been in the in the thick of that and found that a very confusing place to be, and challenging. It's really challenging, uh, especially when uh, you, you know you don't necessarily have the formularies to lean on, but you do have this uh, really strong commitment to prayer book fidelity uh present yeah and it it kind of asks the questions well which prayer book what theological vision because when you don't have the other format formularies in a sense hanging with them um the prayer book can be pretty malleable even as even as it's quite specific Uh, yeah i i suppose i mean part of what i was just thinking a moment ago even if you were to put the articles aside um i and just have like just the prayer book liturgy of what it is to be anglican um, I'm really amazed um, that there's, you know, a very some very liturgically minded people in the Episcopal Church and in Anglican Church North America. Uh, we call it sometimes it's joked up there, the liturgically fussy people, I guess, who who really yeah. love who really love the more traditional language, if you will, liturgy. Mm-hmm. They like to hearken back to right one and. Right one, of course, has it has traditional language, and it's because it retains a lot of the Cramnerian language. I mean, yes, even yeah. with all the revisions, Cramner's language, the seventy nine prayer book is the biggest change. Twenty eight still has verbatim so much of Cramner's right prayers and colics. So mm-hmm. it in I they I, it seems to me, I'm going to sound very uncharitable, but it's like they're they're attracted to the beauty of the prose of it or or mm-hmm. how it's holy sounding but they just don't appreciate its reformational character which is just right there smack right there in front of it, front of you as you look at it. i mean or the ref the reformational character of the language seems to be overlooked i mean do you find i mean i find that frustrating i mean i do you think that's that's uh, <laughs> it seems to yeah. me it's still there in the language and it's just being overlooked but i mean the yeah prayer, I, I, the, the I do prayer find of humble access uh being Mm -hmm. i guess so Uh, it's all there it certainly is all there uh almost all there you know in 28 and in right one of of 79 Mm -hmm. you you it's quite a bit of of cranmer's vision quite a bit of uh the the language of repentance and those sorts of things so um my next question was um since we're on the topic of some of this revisionistic history i know so another current other than that of you know the high church anglo-catholicism which we've kind of just alluded to a bit um there's also the 20th century liturgical movement and which you mentioned in the book Mm -hmm. um can you explain what and and this of course is what went behind a lot of the later uh, the most recent prayer book in the episcopal church for instance the 79 prayer book um and probably uh the acna's modern recent prayer book is well uh, are, are very much influenced by the liturgical yes. movement yes mm-hmm. can you explain to us like what the liturgical movement was yeah the liturgical movement of the 20th century was bound up in a lot of uh currents that were swelling um it, it, amongst different denominations of christianity in the 20th century there was a, a, a strong drive towards ecumenism a strong drive towards uh different traditions wanting to find a common voice and common worship, uh, even amongst, even between uh, Roman Catholics and certain different Protestant denominations. Uh, so that's definitely a part of it. There is a strong drive also in the liturgical movement of the 20th century toward uh, the a, a kind of version of priesthood of all believers, but it's more like just congregational participation. They didn't want it to be so uh, priestly driven that the people were kind of left without without being able to participate in the liturgy. Those were some of the values going into it. And therefore, people who who hold those values and then revise prayer books tend to want to go back to sources that are antiquity is valued. And so sources that predate the Reformation become a, a common 
a search and a common goal. Let's let's unearth and refine and grab a hold of these more ancient liturgies. You start to hear language amongst liturgiologists in the 20th century that, in a sense, uh, we're do we're doing what Cranmer did, but just better because we have access to more manuscripts. We have access to liturgies that Cranmer didn't even know existed that predated him. And, and part of the inference is, had Cranmer known what we know, he would have done what we're doing now. Uh, and and what I find, I, I find maybe there there could be some truth in that, uh, except for the fact that scholars like Ashley Knoll are quite recently discovering that Cranmer was far more knowledgeable about the patristics, mm -hmm. about especially the writings, maybe not necessarily the liturgies, but certainly the, the writings of the fathers. Uh, he was keenly interested and he had an army of secretaries collating and taking notes on um, on on the church fathers and heretofore we didn't even know those were Cranmer's notebooks but Null has discovered them in libraries in France and England and Germany and has been uh, looking into these and looking at Cranmer's notes in those notebooks looking at his secretaries and all that to say that in the 20th century, as this movement swells, they're not necessarily uh, paying attention to maybe some of the things that I'm pointing out in the book that are driving forces of Cranmer. Uh, they're, they're way more interested in, in liturgies that are simply older. And so you find that value at play in the ACNA's prayer book when they've got um, their two different texts that they offer as an option for the Eucharistic liturgy, one of them called the Anglican Standard Text. And... Uh, I can't remember the the name of the other Renewed one off the top of my head. Text. Renewed ancient text. Yeah, that's that 20th century uh, liturgical movement value kind of coming to the fore there as well. Uh, so those are some of the values. There are others, but they collectively pushed liturgical revision in, uh, in Lutheran circles, in Presbyterian circles, in Anglican circles, and even amongst the, the Vatican II stuff going on for the Roman Catholics. Uh, and, and they all kind of rode in, in a similar direction with some of the same values at play. I think one of the things that, that really troubles me about the liturgical movement and, and what came out. So, I mean, obviously, I'm an Episcopal priest, so I celebrate the Eucharist according to the 79 prayer book every week, um, with the exception of that one time a year. Um, and what... Um, what I see is, you know, in like in the baptismal liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is fundamentally not Cranmerian because mm -hmm. what has been, what has taken over, been taken over, or what what took over the minds of Anglicans in the mid twentieth century is this originalism, this to be completely uncharitable, a fetishization of the ancient. Mm. That what mm -hmm. ended up happening is we got a bunch of semi-Pelagianism <laughs> in the actual baptismal liturgy. Like yeah. in the 1928 prayer book, you, you never you never can tell how important a conjunction can be, right? <laughs> but, but in the sure. 28 prayer book, you've yeah. got in the baptismal covenant, I will by God's help, right? Mm -hmm. Which is reformed. Mm -hmm. I will with God's help is the 79. Yeah. And that becomes semi-Pelagian. That's yeah. the point you can't cross. And yet... We did. And it's because semi-Pelagianism is native to the East. It's native to Rome. Um, it's native to a lot of um, post-Second Great Awakening Protestantism. Indeed. Um, but so, so like that's one area where I feel like the vision of the 79 prayer book um, sort of left behind Kramer's vision. Is there other, are there other things that you might feel like a glaring? Um... Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, in morning prayer liturgy and in Holy communion, you find certain phrases excised or relegated or certain sections excised or relegated. Right. Uh, even the fact that in the 79 prayer book, you have sections that are optional called penitential liturgies, right? You know, what would have for Cranmer been fundamental, confession, absolution, law, those sorts of things. Right. They wouldn't have been just for penitential seasons. They would have, it's a, it's the mark of the Christian, you know. It's, it's a life of, of repentance, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, <laughs> it's Luther's first thesis of the 95. When Christ said, repent, he willed that all of life be repentance. And really, Cranmer took that liturgically to mean our liturgy is always confessing and being told that we are forgiven. And we never, 
graduate from that. And that's not something we just do in sad times like Advent and Lent. We do it daily and we do it weekly together. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the things that a lot of uh, modern Protestants have pointed out about the 79 prayer book who are committed to Reformation ideals is that there's a softening and an excising of sin. Um, and there, you know, this this kind of came coupled along with some of the liturgical movements ideals is a concern that Cranmer's liturgy uh, was was overly down on the dignity of humanity and that it had a shaping effect on kind of people looking far too lowly on themselves. And we were kind of in a century where we felt like, oh, we need to affirm the Bible's understanding of the dignity of people. And so you actually hear the word dignity uh, in some of the some of the options for the Eucharistic liturgy. And you start to see the loss of phrases like it's a it's a hard phrase, but miserable offenders. It's a hard phrase like there is no health in us, a quote from right. Psalm 38. Um, and so those phrases are gone and you start to see uh, things just soften. So it, it doesn't sound like at least the caricature is Cranmer's liturgies just sound like self-flagellation. Sounds like we're just trying to grovel right. and beat ourselves up. And there's nothing worth affirming that's good about us. And it's just making us feel bad about our ourselves yeah and so you see that stuff go by the wayside and i believe that there has been bad presentations i suppose where uh it was all about um feeling lowly and and but yep but indeed you know it's like this probably goes without saying um when you lose that though when when, when you soften sin it has the effect of softening the grace of god too i mean when we don't see ourselves as miserable offenders, we also won't be able to see ourselves as being utterly reliant on a good God who is complete, yep. who is completely dependable for us to rely on, you know? Yeah, um, indeed. I, I mean, this is uh this is the reformation distinction between law and gospel at play kind of on the flip side, because when you're soft on sin, it's sort of like you're taking the teeth out of the law. And, right. and so the law is just sort of gumming you. And uh, and just sort of saying, hey, you know, be be a little better. And when the laws, uh, if I'm just using some, some biblical language, if the law is gumming you, not killing you, uh, you don't you don't need resurrection. You just need a little self-improvement. Right. And so uh, once once you're soft on sin, you're out of the realm of death and resurrection and you're in the realm of self-help and moral improvement and all that Pelagian stuff that actually the church found heretical a long time ago. Uh, and, and this was something that, that the reformers across the board found that we must be is uh, serious and clear eyed about the radical nature of the effects of sin on us. Mm -hmm. So even while we want to avoid what I call some of the bastardization, bastardization of the application of things like the experience and articulation of total depravity. And there has been some abuse that have led to people thinking that I'm just supposed to hate myself, uh, you know, even though that's a liability, a pastoral liability that maybe folks in our traditions and, and camps need to really take seriously because I'm pastoring people who are, uh, who have received the effects of that. The answer isn't to jettison that stuff because you, you lose the very thing that offers you the beauty of the gospel, which is a clear-eyed reception of the law of saying, this is actually who I am. This is actually my state. This is actually the depth of my need. Mm -hmm. uh, and apart from that, grace is only going to be as amazing as uh, as deep I know I'm in the pit. So uh, those kinds of things, it's it's a mirror image. Law and gospel hang together. They're, they're part of God's word and, and are both preached in order that the gospel might be most effective yeah i mean it's what kramer says in one of his colleagues there is nothing that we can do of ourselves to help ourselves yep um, there is yep. no help in us and and the 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 fascinating thing is that it, it seems like that would make you feel really down on yourself but it's actually one of the most freeing things you could possibly hear um, yep. because it does kill you of any self-righteousness of any belief that you can make yourself better. I mean, this is the difference between Luther and Erasmus too. Indeed. Uh, yep. You know, I, I, I will never forget reading the bondage of the will for the first time and mm -hmm. at like 
when Luther's, you know, hounding Erasmus because Erasmus is basically saying, you know, you just need to do that one percent, right? God's got the ninety-nine, you just do the one. Mm -hmm. You know, um, to to borrow a phrase from Bonhoeffer, that's cheap grace. Yeah, and that's not good news. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not good because even that one percent, you could be like, okay, am I doing point twenty-five percent? Am I doing zero point? 35 yeah. percent right how, how do i know when i've contributed that one percent yeah well i mean if it's if it's you know and and, and even if you can do the one percent right if it's if it's the one percent that's what purchases the grace of god then god's grace is pretty cheap but mm -hmm. if it's god's saving work in jesus christ that purchases for us the grace of god then that's the most costly thing you can ever imagine yeah and if that one percent's there it always leaves me wondering with a, a bit of a question mark on whether I truly have given that 1%. It's, right. it's never something I can fully quantify, and it creates a foothold for uh, a kind of spiritual anxiety and an uncertainty and a lack of comfort. Uh, it, all, it steals the comfort of the gospel. It doesn't allow the gospel to be a comfortable word. It allows it uh, really to be nothing. It, it kind of it swallows up the gospel in the law. And, and all I'm left with is a question mark and a possibility that I haven't done my part in, in my salvation. That's the, I think that's one of the biggest problems. And this, this was actually revealed for me by, um, by a, a member of the reformed camp, Michael Horton. Yeah. In his book, Christless Christianity. That's yep. the, the, the commingling of law and gospel is one of the worst travesties of Amen. Yep. history yeah i love horton on law and gospel i appreciate his clarity on that he's done a lot to help me yeah yeah he's awesome um i wanted to bring when when you you mentioned uh about what this whole talk about what the question of what what do we contribute toward our salvation uh how, how can we um is it that god does most of it but we have to do a little bit you know, this mm -hmm. reminded me of, and then, then you say, of course, and if, if we're left with that, having to do that little bit, we, I think you said something along the lines of like, it's, it's, it leads to a type of spiritual anxiety. Um, yeah. There's the question mark on if I've, if I've done enough, um, the kind of, that reminded me of um, the part in your book where you get into Cramner's uh, revision of a lot of the collects. I mean, he took uh collects yeah. of course prayers uh that are said in the beginning of our um of liturgy which kind of uh provide in, in many ways a theological summation of the 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 themes that we find in the readings of the day and, and such he took a lot of you know collects have been you know he took a lot of the ancient collects and medieval collects and he took um there's a collect, of course, from these from an old from you know the sacramentaries, which were like I yeah. guess the 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 missals or the mass books that priests used in the Middle Ages. And he took one collect that read, "Almighty and everlasting God, who dost exceed the merits and prayers of thy suppliants, suppliants, pour down upon us thy mercy." That was the older version. Did I pronounce as suppliants? That's not a word we use today. Right. Yeah, suppliance. Yeah. I've heard it kind of said both ways. Yeah. But but Cramner revised and said, Almighty mm -hmm. and everlasting God, he totally uh took out who dost exceed the merits of the prayers of thy suppliance. He said, Almighty and everlasting God, which art always more ready to hear than we to pray, and are mm -hmm. to give more than either we des desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy. This is for the twelfth Sunday yeah. Trinity. Um yeah. That was probably the most, that was one of his more radical revisions. Other, he changes the word uh, uh -huh. here and yeah. there. But that it's because he, the, the first version, it's like, God, you exceed our merits. You know, um, there, it's still like a, a, a scale of merit. Right. In that collect. And in the next one, of course, he just totally jettisons that and says, um, and just talks about God's goodness. He's more ready yeah. to hear than we to pray. And recognizing our our shortcomings still. The first one recognizes the shortcoming. They're saying, well, we're, we can be good, but we're never as good as God. But but he just, he reframes it and mm -hmm. showing, just pointing at our depravity. I mean, this is an example of how prayer, which is emphasizes our depravity, 
but also with God, you know, also points to God's goodness in a better way than a prayer about, you know, us being sort of good, but God being even better. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, he was very interested. He, this, one of the reasons I like to, if I'm introducing who Cranmer is and what he's up to, to people, I like to start with the collects because they're clean and they're mm-hmm. easy to see side by side. Uh, and they're so obvious once you set them side by side you see oh he really does he start he's obsessed over certain words he's obsessed over certain concepts being present and absent and when you see patterns you're like this elucidates what's driving this revision Mm -hmm. and then you take that as a lens and you start to see it all over the place beyond the collects but the collects are really clean i mean the one that I, i love the most is what he does with the collect for the beginning of Lent, you know, the original collect that he had reads, God who didst purify thy church by the yearly observance of Lent, help your family strive toward abstinence and flawless good works. And there you have the kind of synergism of help your family strive. So you did this well, now it's our turn. We want to do it well too. And Cranmer, funny enough, didn't find that prayer salvageable or editable. (laughs) So he just (laughs) cuts it out and look what he puts in its place. Instead of trying to make maybe our participation just a little bit more muted, he highlights at the beginning of the Lent nothing about our abstinence at all, uh, except as it pertains to Christ. So he writes, O Lord, which for our sake didst fast 40 days and 40 nights, give us grace to use such abstinence so to to in a sense apply and live in the abstinence of christ that our flesh being subdued to the spirit we may ever obey that godly motions and that godly motions is old language for the work of the spirit um, (laughs) in righteousness and true holiness to thy honor and glory so instead of the focus of lent being on what i'm giving up for god Mm-hmm. It it is headlined by what Christ has given up and given to me out of His own righteousness in the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Um. You, I think I think I remember from the book. Um, you bringing up this concept of promise theology as yeah kind of the thrust of you know which drives Cramner in his study and in his reforms. And I know like theology of promise is kind of, a, it's definitely like a reformational thing. Like I, I remember reading like Oswald Byers, Luther scholarship. Yeah. Uh, his, his, you know, what he's known for as far as his um, scholarly interpretation of, of Luther is, is the, is the theology of promise. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain how does that apply to, how does that pertain to Cramner? I guess. Yeah, I just started to notice the language of the word promise in Cranmer's liturgies and in his writings, such that he he seems to be wanting to make that more obvious, especially when that language isn't in the liturgies he received. The fact that word starts to appear is a signal to me. And mm-hmm. so I start start observing the ways that his contemporaries and predecessors, particularly Luther and Melanchthon, describe the nature of promise and what... What they were after is that the gospel is not a condition, it is a promise. And when the word takes the form of the promise, you're actually hearing the gospel. Uh, because what, and this is a bit this is a bit technical in the way I have to describe this, but justification is what tells us what the gospel is and is not. Justification is the litmus test and, and gives us a kind of grammatical framework to discern, is what I'm hearing right now the gospel or not the gospel that's mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of um the language i'm using is from the pauline scholar jonathan lineball who i referenced earlier that really pulls out of out of paul's writings this idea that justification is a grammar of the gospel mm-hmm. so with that in place when i'm giving you a promise or when god in particular is offering you a promise saying your sins are forgiven i promise what he's saying uh is is I give this to you apart from anything that you do. It's simply my word that makes it effectual. My promise um, is a word that has no conditions. And that's precisely what a promise is. I'm not doing this motivated out of anything that I see in you. It's simply me from myself giving you something based on my character and who I am. And it's a word I declare. And the unlike humans who make promises, 
you know, humans can make promises and one of two things could happen. Either we could not be powerful enough or not good enough. You know, if I'm not powerful enough, I might be good and I make a promise to you, but there might be uh, conditions in which I can't keep that promise. Uh, but if I'm powerful and not good, I can make a promise to you, but just not keep it. But God is both all powerful and all good. And when he makes a promise, therefore, uh, such that I will be with you always, it's as good as done in what he said. And so the whole idea of a theology of promise is the idea is that when God speaks his word, he accomplishes what he says, that his word does the work of his word. Um, and so that takes the form of gospel promises, mm -hmm. which is why Cranmer fills the liturgy with promises. One could say that the four comfortable words are just four bald declarations. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if it, it, uh, What are the other ones? The, For God so loved the world John, yeah. that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have mm -hmm. everlasting life. This is a true and trustworthy saying, that if anyone sin, we have an advocate with God. Uh, you know, all those ones are four promises that God's just simply offering to the people of God. And if Cranmer really is seizing on what Luther and Melanchthon have elucidated from the scripture, he's recognizing as those moments that actually do the work of bringing life into people's uh, bones, taking dry bones and resurrecting them simply by declaring the promises of God. Right. Um, I like that you brought up the comfortable words, um, you know, and for uh a lot of our listeners who who are like in the Episcopal church, uh, when we do write one, those are of course the comfortable words are those four, because we don't actually say the, we don't actually say com like the, the, the words, comfortable words in the liturgy, but uh -huh. referring to, of course, there's four passages and uh, that can be read or one or two or three of them can be read immediately following the confession and absolution uh, before we give the peace. And of course, you know, one was coming to me all yet travail from Matthew eleven twenty eight, God's mm -hmm. own world. Um, you know, passages about how Christ saves rather than forsakes uh, sinners, right? Words of comfort. And so I had a, I had a question, maybe just maybe more of a, just kind of a like trivia, uh, like, because mm -hmm. I'm curious, that was um, unprecedented, right? That that was a complete innovation of Cramner to, to take these four biblical passages if I'm not mistaken, right, and put them into the liturgy and the same, I believe, I could be wrong, for the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this table, our Lord trusting in our own righteousness, right? Both of these things uh, in, in Cranmer's liturgical uh, work are, they're original to him, right? What, what led him, if they are original to him, that's at least that's from my, what I understand. Yeah. Why, why so did the he prayer... include this innovation, this brand new mm -hmm. thing, I guess? It, it, were you able to find like a pinpoint of when he did it or why? Yeah, I was able to sort of um, take a look at the sources. So the prayer of humble access is definitely all, all from Cranmer. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote it himself. He was definitely employing Eucharistic language that was present in the devotional life of faithful medieval Roman Catholics. But even that and watching him transmute that language and transpose that language is interesting. But for the comfort awards, it's not precise to say that it had never been used before because what you see predating Cranmer in some Reformation liturgies are similar usages of some of those words appearing in predating Reformation liturgies. I talk about this on page 78 of my book. Um, and what I say there is, while it has been shown that the usage of similar groupings of scripture sentences in Eucharistic liturgies is a Reformation innovation. So other Reformed liturgies were offering similar groupings of these kinds of sentences. Not all Reformation liturgies before Cranmer introduced those sentences in the same way. Some liturgies introduced their versions of the comfortable words with languages like this, which is interesting. Uh, audite evangelium or hear the gospel which is the way they introduced it and then they would would offer a few sentences or, or in german horet den evangelischen trost which is hear the gospel comfort um but we never find the grouping of those particular uh, those four particular sentences until cranmer so you have two or three in one spot and then the Matthew 11 one you don't see except in a liturgy by Zwingli, 
put in a very different spot. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you see Cranmer bring them together. And one of the interesting things that scholars like Ashley Knoll observe is that at least a few of these comfortable words were the very lines of scripture that converted his friends. Wow. Uh, like Catherine Parr describes one of those comfortable words of being seminal in her own conversion. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Barnes, I think, wow. if I'm remembering correctly, talks about sp a specific line of one of those comfortable words in the Greek New Testament being precisely what changed him from death to life. So we don't have a, a, a strict case, but what you see in kind of Cranmer's relationships and in his observation of liturgies is basically these scripture passages are zingers that convert people. So I'm going to use them in my liturgies. That's kind of my take on, on what may be going on there. But Cranmer's unique uh, usage of them is that they fall in his liturgy um, right before or, or, or after confession and absolution as people head to the table. So people want to say, oh, maybe it's just an additional form of absolution. Ashley Knoll likes a more finer tuned idea is that Cranmer's purpose with the comfort awards is even after you've been offered the words of forgiveness in God, if there's any reason why you still are kind of hanging on to any apprehension about coming to the table, let God woo you to the table uh, with these words of gospel comfort. So Cranmer takes what had been used in other liturgies as alternates to absolution, which is what those comfortable words were used in those liturgies for, and uses them in addition because there aren't options in his prayer book. It's only the 79 that says, hey, you could use one or two of these if you want. And Cranmer says, use all four. And in a sense, he's using it at that hinge moment where people are getting ready to come to the table just to assure the still uneasy conscience that may question whether even if they've forgiven if they're forgiven, are they worthy to come to the table? And God says, you are you are worthy in Christ. Come on down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah, that thank you. That <laughs> I, I, That's so interesting about Robert Barnes and Catherine Parr. I mean, and these are, of course, Catherine Parr being, you know, let, the last of Henry VIII's several wives. Um, these are, are, are notable people. Um, so very interesting. Yeah, and I may have Barnes wrong. It's Barnes, Latimer, somebody, uh, okay. but it's one of them that has those. So I don't want to, I don't want to mess that up. So at least say I, I need to, I would need to go back and look at that again. Sure. Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah. I again, I very much enjoyed uh the book. I recommend it to our listeners. Again, the title is "Worship by Faith Alone: Thomas Cramner, The Book of Common Prayer and the Reformation of Liturgy." by Zach Hicks. Uh, it's Worship by Faith Alone you can search for. I, the, the, um, and it, by Zach Hicks, and that should find it. Uh, the rest was a subtitle I mentioned. Um, so, uh, so uh, and so uh, currently, I'm just curious, because I, I know Ashley Knoll, uh, who I'd love to get on this podcast. I've said this like a million times before on this, but I keep saying it, but he's a busy guy. But I, I noticed he wrote the foreword to your book. Um, he did. You are currently his student then. Yeah, I've, I'm done being a student. I'm never done being a student, but at least formally in my education, I'm done. I mean, the reason I got onto this trail is because of an initial class I took now a while ago under him, where he just opened up the theology of the Reformation, the original prayer books. And my I was just, my mind was blown yeah. because I saw the quest of gospel-centered worship that I was looking for just spelled out in living color in this 16th century theologian. I said, this is it. This is my next 10 years of study. I want to study this guy. He is a, Ashley Knowles also a, a powerful speaker. Powerful mm -hmm. speaker. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, he uh, really, no embody, I mean, he studied Cranmer so long that he embodies his spirit mm -hmm. in the, in the way that he preaches, which, you know, Cranmer was uh, reclusive. He didn't want the spotlight. <laughs> he was humble. Right. Uh, he lifted up his friends. He he just did not tire of living out of the grace of God. He forgave his enemies. Um, and he just wanted to be left alone with his books. And he kept on getting pushed into the spotlight and having to address things and do things when his best work was just at his study, carving out liturgies and doctrinal statements and sermons. That's where he was. And I find uh, Ashley really similar in his disposition. So you know, I guess the more you study someone, you just start to become them. <laughs> you start to become, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that true? Very serious question for you, Zach. Outside of the horrible beard that this guy had, do you think that the actor <laughs> who played Cranmer in the Tudors portrayed him well? 
Oh, uh, you know, there wasn't, there weren't <laughs> enough appearances to decide, uh, you know, I was kind of bummed. I mean, I know it wasn't the point. And, you know, if you're looking for, for Hollywood spice, Kramer ain't going to be it except right. at his death, but <laughs> the tutors weren't going to spend any time at Kramer's death. So Kramer just kind of lost, lost. He was a B-level actor and right. he's sort of, uh, not the actor himself, but a B-level player in the plot right. is right. what I mean by that. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have enough intel to make, <laughs> make any case for uh, whether that was good or not. The thing that bothered me uh, about it was that the, the, whoever wrote the script for it uh, and the show is fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting It, show. it was a binge worthy show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that, the thing that troubled me was that Cranmer was, you know, a yes man, cat uh-huh. toast kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Cranmer, Cranmer was willing, was like one of the only people willing to dress down Henry. Like, uh huh. Like in real life, you're yeah. saying. Right. In real yeah. life. Yeah. Um, but in the show, it was basically like, what do you want me to do? I'll do it more, you know? Yeah. Somehow in the revisionist history of Cranmer, his, the final sort of moments of his life where he's recanting and recanting his recantations has become a kind of like stamp. On, on his whole disposition, which is he's just a wishy-washy guy that doesn't know his theology or doesn't, you know, is just kind of at the whim of of crazy King Henry. Uh, and there is some truth to the fact that actually out of Cranmer's theological conviction of the divine right of kings, he, uh, under submission to God, viewed his submission to the king um, as as really important. Mm-hmm. Which is which is actually plays into why it was such a, a a wrestling match to not submit to Queen Mary despite their theological differences. Right, and that's become a kind of uh, a trope about Cranmer. Um, but no, when you look behind the scenes in his writings, you know, especially in this real interesting interplay that we have records of of Cranmer's uh, annotations on the King's Book. Uh, King's Book Institution, you see him going back and forth and being real bold with Henry theologically. And those kinds of moves with any other person could lead to your head being lopped off. Right. Uh, but Cranmer and Henry had a special relationship and Henry had a special affection for him such that he tolerated that. And and Cranmer too, truly respected Henry. And so is it really interesting to watch that at play? And yeah, you see lots of backbone, especially when it interestingly came to the gospel. So Kramer was unwilling to back down uh, with Henry on that particular subject. Well, yeah. I do... well it's because Henry Henry uh, was just as willing as any medieval Roman Catholic to commingle law and gospel. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you see that in in his attempt. What was it? The what was the really really terrible one? Was it the six articles or the ten articles? Um, the six articles was like the yeah. reaffirmation of. Uh-huh. Of English Catholicism, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fifteen forties, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the six articles follow the ten articles, which were or the thirteen articles actually, which were an attempt to try to work out some theology in concert with sure. uh, the German Lutherans yeah. at the time. That was the decade before when yeah, mm-hmm. and Henry, of course, was um getting he was married or getting married to uh and cleaves yeah and, and that um it all didn't work out <laughs> so oh, anglicanism, anglicanism is not lutheran because henry <laughs> did not like Anne of cleaves yeah yeah that's that's one take <laughs> um well and going back to the cramner cramner actors if i remember correctly it's been a while but there was the seven the bbc in the 70s did a miniseries called elizabeth r with glenda jackson who played mm. elizabeth and they also did a prequel show called six wives of henry the eighth um and if i remember correctly i don't remember which one there was a cramner there was the time cramner was in one or both of those series and the actor who played him i don't remember if he was uh, accurate or even like good portrayal but he looked just like uh, the famous painting of Cramner, oh. <laughs> like he looked literally looked, yeah. looks like Cramner. So, which I thought was cool. Um, but yeah, just for if anyone's any listeners interested in going back and watching those old shows. So, well, maybe we maybe one drama. of the only benefits of AI might be we could eventually like recreate the dude's face and uh, get yeah. him acting and well, stuff. And you know, well, CG, <laughs> a CGI Cramner, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then Chad GBT, all of his. Uh, 
all of his uh, dialogue, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, well, uh, thank you, Zach. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, uh, I encourage, of course, our listeners to read the book. Again, it's Worship by Faith Alone by Zach Hicks. God bless.